welcome to the Healthy Gospel Church podcast, a podcast where we explore all aspects of church life while also shining a spotlight on good practice. My name is David Meredith, I'll be your host. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you hear, please help these algorithms out and share it as far and wide as you can. Well, with me today is a friend and colleague, uh, Ian Watson. Ian is Minister of Hope Church in uh, Muir Hill in Lanarkshire. Ian, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much, David. Can I just correct you? It's Hope Church, Blackwood and Kirk Muir Hill. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm a Paisley man, so I cannot get the nuances of Kirk Muir Hill. Three distinct syllables. Kirk Muir Hill, yes. And let's not you have forget to be a lo- You have to be a local. Let's not forget Blackwood. Is that important? It is to the Blackwood people. Excellent, excellent. How long have you been there, Ian? I've actually been here 19 years. Came here in 2003 to be the parish minister at Kirkney Hill Parish Church. Excellent, great. Well, a lot of our listeners will know you. Some folk wouldn't know you. Tell us a wee bit about your story, where you were brought up in your kind of church context. Okay, mostly brought up in Scotson and Clyde Bank. My father was a Pentecostal pastor, so raised in a believing home. And I have to say, very grateful for that Christian upbringing. We were old-fashioned Pentecostals. We were authorised version Pentecostals. The women wore hats, and I have to say as well, for the free church folk, very Sabbatarian. And I'll just tell you a wee story about my mother, who was quite a a, a, um, fierce believer, let me put it that way. Uh, We were on holiday once uh, when I was a child and uh, it was a Sunday and it was scorching. And I said to my mum, can we get an ice cream? And she said, no. And I said, why not? She said, it's Sunday. But mum, we're on holiday. And I'll never forget a reply, the Lord's not on holiday. So, <laughs> that's the kind of upbringing we had. Like, I, I, as a child, did you resent that or did you quite enjoy it? Oh, I don't think resent or enjoy is the word. I just accepted it. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be honest and say I was never a comfortable Pentecostal, but I had no other theology to contradict what we were taught, particularly about speaking in tongues and prophesying and maybe even about uh, the eschatology. I had had no other theology until I went to university and studied law at Strathclyde University and then was exposed to some of the greatest preachers in Scotland at that time. I mean, we are talking about Eric Alexander, David Ellis, the Phillips brothers, uh, and, and others from other denominations as well, but there were giants in the land in those days. So how did you get into that, Ian? Well, I mean, what was the transition from the Pentecostal church to the kind of more uh, reformed Reform. stuff? Yeah, uh-huh. uh, well, you see, the foundation was that if the Bible says that we believe it, and for that I will always be grateful. And I would have to say came to faith probably aged five or six, really young, uh, I remember being sent to bed for being naughty one night and lying in my bed thinking to myself, I've been naughty. Dad says that's sin. I need to ask Jesus to forgive my sin. 
ask him into my life. I mean, that was the kind of logic of my thinking as, as a child. And I believe I did ask the Lord Jesus to come into my life and uh, by his grace have been kept all, all those years. So, as I say, I had no other theology to contradict what we were being taught. And, of course, most of it was, was good. You know, you must be born again and you must live a holy life and you read your Bible and you pray. Um, but I heard a series on the five points of Calvinism. And uh, somebody gave me five tapes on the five points of Calvinism. Uh, I would be 2021. 20, can't quite remember exactly. And I listened to one a day, Monday through to Friday. And by the Friday, I was a convinced Calvinist because the preacher grounded everything that he said on Scripture. Okay. And then after that, I felt I really couldn't be involved in, in, in the Pentecostal church. Would, would, would you not say, though, Ian, that to a certain extent, maybe your, your father and some of his friends were functional Calvinists in that they, they believed that it was, you know, God and God alone that brought a sinner to repentance. Absolutely right. Always, it's, I mean, again, it's all by grace. It's all by grace. Um, so, yeah, maybe the foundations were there. Well, they certainly were. They were there. Well, what would you say were the strengths and weaknesses of the, the wee church that you were brought up in? Um, I think what the sociologists would call a kind of, um, there was a kind of dissonance between what they actually believed and what was actually happening. <laughs> because they believed in miracles. They believed in raising the dead. They believed in giving sight to the blind. It never happened. It never <laughs> happened. Right? You know? So it was a cognitive dissonance um, but the, my dad preached the gospel, uh, and I tell you, he was a hard worker. The one big thing I believe I've inherited from my dad, he was excellent with children. Uh, he probably maybe missed part of his calling, I would have said, to be actually a children's evangelist more than a regular. Was he a full-time pastor? No, you see, the church was never big enough for that. So he actually was a driving instructor part-time, and that enabled him to you know, choose his own hours. But I saw the weaknesses in that, which is one of the reasons that uh, I believe in the full-time ministry. Uh, I think a part-time ministry just pulls you in both directions. You, you get the worst of both worlds. Okay. I mean, a, a big theme of our podcast is a healthy gospel church. So would you say, what were the healthy elements? So thinking of that church in particular, just briefly, the healthy bits and the non-healthy bits. So, I mean, was there anything kind of good that you remember about it? The children's work. Yeah. Massive. I mean, again, those were the days of big Sunday schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember uh, they had a children's mission. Uh, and I, uh, I couldn't get in to the church because of the queues. And I remember as a wee boy thinking to my, resenting that, this is my church, I can't even get into it for all the kids out here, you know? Uh, so, yeah, that was the thing. But when it came to conversions, and when it certainly came to the signs, miracles, and wonders, um, no. Yeah, well, so that, not, maybe not a bad thing, actually. 
Absolutely. Okay, so you, you went to Glasgow, you studied the law. Uh, you were hearing this this great preaching from, yeah. was it the Tron you were going to at the time? No, no, no. Um, no, I kept going back home. I was involved in ministry. And that's a thing I want to encourage folks about too. Uh, there, there's, there was a, a healthy attitude that uh, I was encouraged to maybe lead the praise, uh, to preach. It was a kind of situation, the, the Sunday morning worship would be everybody and anybody can share what the Lord had been teaching them that week. And sometimes you get gold and sometimes you get utter dross. But the fact is we were encouraged to do that. Uh, so I was involved in Sunday school teaching and Bible class. Uh, so I used to go home. But it was when I came into a reformed understanding of, of the faith, for which I'm most grateful, that I started to look around for a reformed church. And I did try various places. But I did then go to St. George's Tron, and I have to say that I was bowled over. And I'll tell you what I was bowled over by. Eric Alexander was preaching on Genesis 50, where after the death of Jacob, Joseph's brothers come to him and they spin this story about how their father begged Joseph not to take revenge on them. They're worried that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph is going to exact revenge on them. And Joseph says to them, what you did to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many souls. I had no theology to answer that. But God would use evil, human evil, for his glory, for his good. That, you know, in, our, in my upbringing, God did good, Satan did evil. Almost dualistic, to be quite honest. Anything bad happens to you, it's the devil. No concept of God being sovereign over all of life. Yeah. So then... I felt at home. Contrary to everything I was used to, used to a small church, he was a big church. Here was everybody and anybody preaching. Here was a one man preaching most of the time. Um, but boy, oh boy, I felt at home. Well, would you not say, Ian, I mean, you're a similar age to me. Uh, we were students in the late 70s, the early 80s. Would you not say the spiritual temperature in Scotland then was higher than it is today? And that accounts for a lot of the power. I think so. I think so. And uh, I am very proud of the fact that so many of my contemporaries went into full-time Christian work. Mm -hmm. I can talk to you about missionaries, other ministers, uh, or parachurch workers. And they're, 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 they're friends of mine. We grew right. up together. Great. We'll, we'll come to that in a wee minute. I mean, you, you study the law. Um, why? Uh, because the only thing I, I'm good at is talking. <laughs> I'm useless at ever, everything else. <laughs> and I was um, I, I was wooed by a rumpel of the Bailey. And there was also an American program called The Paper Chase about law students. Um, and, and basically, from my early teens, that's really all I wanted to do. And they ended up flogging houses in Knightswood and it wasn't like the telly. Well, no, no, you see, because I actually became a court lawyer. Sorry. 
convenient. So it wasn't so uh, my, uh, I, I was doing crime and divorce and medical negligence and anything basically that, that involved the court. Because all I can do is talk, David. I'm useless at everything else. Right. I mean, what was the change? I mean, I think the, the law, like you, I'm drawn to the law. It's really interesting. As a career, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a good earner. Not as much as people think it is, but but it's, it's better, you know. Better than uh, the ministry. You, you starting off in law, within a few years, you know, you're, you're certainly earning a lot more than, than you would in the ministry. Why, yeah. why give it up and go in? Why all the hassle? Well, you see, because my father was a pastor, I, as it were, always had the choice of going into the ministry. You know, it was always an it was always going to be an option on the table, as it were. You know, but I saw the cost of the ministry not in financial terms, but in emotional terms, and I have memories of being round the dinner table on a Sunday afternoon, and my dad in tears mm. because of the behaviour of some so-called spirit-filled Christians. So I had actually made the choice. I'm not, I'm not going into the ministry. I'm going to be one of these rich Christians that goes up to missionaries and hands them a thousand pounds and says, the Lord told me to give you this. Honestly, David, that, that was what I had in mind. And, uh, and, and to a certain extent, I kind of did that to the extent that I could. But I had initially, my, my, my honours degree in law was very much veered towards business and banking. So I had a plan that I was uh, really going to be working in that sphere. However, I ended up, the way it ended up was, Rather than working at the high end of the law, I was actually working at the low end of the law. People in trouble, crime, divorce, suing one another over this, that, the next thing. And over a period of about two years, I was only in practice for five years. And the last two years particularly, just thinking to myself, you know, people would talk to me. People would open up to me, David. So I remember one occasion looking at the clock and my client had been in for an hour and probably only 15 or 20 minutes of these had actually been dealing with the legal problem. The rest is that she'd basically poured her heart out to me. And I, would just, I used to say to people, you know, have you spoken to a minister about this? Have you spoken to your priest about this? So people could open up to me. They felt comfortable. And the other thing was, I was active in my local church. I was a member at Kinross Parish Church, where I, I got my first job as a solicitor. And uh, we had an evangelical minister, Leslie Barr, still in touch with him. And when he would climb up the pulpit and read the passage, in my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder how I would preach this. And... Uh, and so you begin to think, and I was involved in ministry. I was actually asked to be an elder in my late 20s. I was running the youth fellowship. And I just began to think, is my future in the law? Or am I being called to the ministry? So I would say to people, do you think I could be a minister? 
And to every single one, yeah, of course. Everybody's looking at me thinking he's going to be a minister. I'm the only one that's surprised by the idea. Well, here's a, let me tell you how the Lord works. You know that in Scots law, certainly traditionally, the concept of corroboration is very important. You have to have two witnesses. It's a biblically based um, concept, corroboration. So I'm thinking about becoming a minister or, or some kind of ministry. And by this time, Kim and I are engaged. So we go to see our minister, uh, Leslie Barr, and uh, we say to him, we're wondering maybe about the mission field. Um, maybe, you know, YWAM or OM, we're thinking about that. You know, what's your advice? Oh, yeah, it was very encouraging. But he took me aside and he said, Ian, have you never thought about the ministry? No, I no, no, I couldn't. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't put up with it. Couldn't, couldn't put up with it, that, no, no. Then we also had a family friend, Roy Spraggett, who was the Scottish rep for WEC. The, the father-in-law of Alistair Wilson, who teaches upstairs, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we went, Kim and I went to see Roy. Roy, we're thinking about going to the mission field. Um, you know, what, what would you advise on that? And he said to me, Ian, have you never thought about the ministry? <laughs> Such a corroboration. Exact same words. Oh, Roy, Roy, you're supposed to be recruiting people for the, for the mission field, not for, when, not yeah. for staying at home. Roy said to me, he says, no, I'm more interested in placing people where the Lord places them. So again, the corroboration, two completely separate, two witnesses having collaborated and uh, that then got me thinking, right, okay, is this with a Isn't that an important principle in guidance, Ian? Instead of yes. something kind of mystical, you just ask opinions of godly people who will give you that objectivity. Correct. Now, you, one thing that strikes me about you, uh, I don't know, is it the, the Glasgow thing? Is you're a very honest, straightforward person. Do you sometimes think in Christian and evangelical circles, we, we lack that capacity to, to have adult conversations. Yes. It has to be done in love. It really has to be. And the Lord knows your heart. So if you're speaking to someone spitefully, maliciously, in order to run them down and build yourself up, that is sinful. But there must be a case, as with the Apostle Paul speaking to Peter, when he refused to uh, consort with the Gentiles. You've got to speak the truth in love at times, David. Yeah. You've got an obligation to do that. Yeah. Now, you, because of your, your ministry and your church trajectory, you've been involved in a wee bit of conflict over the years, not always involving yourself, but you've, have you found that difficult or have you found it liberating? Well, you see, I think this is, again, part of the Lord's preparation. Because if you have appeared in front of Sheriff Christie at Kirkcaldy Sheriff Court, there's basically not much else you're going to be frightened of, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, so, yes, that's part of the preparation. So when the same-sex issue came to the fore in the Church of Scotland, I was in... Uh, Kirkmuir Hill Parish Church, 
which was as evangelical a parish church as you can get. Outside the big cities, uh, had a long history of evangelical ministry. All the elders, born again guys, vast majority of the congregation, born again, sympathetic to the evangelical cause. Still a parish church though, so you still get folk just coming because it's a parish church. Why on earth? I have no idea. Why they would sit under my ministry if they don't actually, you know, are born again, I don't know. But anyway, I felt I had an obligation to speak out because I knew I had my elders and my congregation behind me. And when I say speak out, simply to argue the biblical case regarding same-sex relationships, which is that the tenor of scripture is that to be actively involved in a same-sex relationship is sinful. Um, so I got involved in the evangelical grouping of the Church of Scotland called Forward Together. I was their secretary, and therefore I was the one that was called upon to speak on the radio, on television, and even interviewed for the newspapers. And uh, I have the dubious honour of appearing on a, a full-length photograph of me on page three of the London Times. It was a, in one ways it was a hard time, but in another sense, it wasn't. Yeah. Can, can I ask a tough question here? I mean, one could argue that 20, 30, maybe 40 years before then, the Church of Scotland made other decisions which were as difficult and as wrong. Yeah. Why did you guys stay? Mm -hmm. Why Why was it the LGBT stuff that made you go? Yeah, well, now you see, here's the interesting thing. Yes, back in the late 60s, uh, the Church of Scotland had uh, mandated that, that women could be elders and ministers. But at that time, it was optional. And then later on, there was more pressure on congregations or on congregations to, to ordain women to the ministry. And then they were tolerating, there was a famous Christmas message by one of the moderators that you didn't have to believe in the virgin birth, uh, resurrection, you know, the whole, all these things. They went to the core of the Christian faith. But you see, at the same time, David, I was part of a core of guys who came in who were evangelicals. There was, there was a good number of us. I even remember a chap who was openly gay. Uh, he was a probationer at the same time as me. This chap who was openly gay saying he was worried for his future because he felt the church was becoming more evangelical. But what seems to have happened is that uh, this, this unwillingness to get in a fight. Right, so I'm right saying that you felt that the tide was beginning to turn and there was some others, evidence. Others were telling us, guys who were ahead of us, like Andy, Andy McGowan, were telling us, you're the future of the Church of Scotland. You're going to turn the Church of Scotland round. Just, just wait. This week, because our numbers are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah, well, you see that happening in the, in the PCI, the Presbyterian of Ireland. It's kind of happened for them, but it didn't happen in, in the CFS. Ah, but the, this PCI did a whole lot of other stuff 
Okay. Uh, bear in mind that, you know, this is a podcast, so the whole world will be hearing it. Um, just talk a wee bit. I'm, I'm really impressed that we get move from Kirkmuir, Blackwood, or Kirkmuir Hill Parish Church to Hope Church, Blackwood, yeah. and Kirkmuir Hill. Now, I, I know that you're really doing well just now. I don't know if we'll have time to talk about that. We might do that later. But what, what made the change for you? Was there a yeah. point of inevitability? Yeah, yeah. So, David, contrary to popular belief, when we left the parish church, it wasn't done in a hurry. We actually took four years to pray and to think over it. Um, and when I say we, what I mean is basically myself and nearly all the elders. And half the congregation uh, came with us. Now, you were involved. We, we invited you guys along to speak to the congregation, to answer questions. Uh, I remember you saying to them, if you come into the free church, the only thing that will change is your notice board and you'll just put the word free in front of Church of Scotland. <laughs> That's the only change. And that actually is the truth because by and large, our whole ethos was very similar to the free church. Gospel was preached, all male eldership, all that kind of thing was there. Did you even sing a psalm every service? We used to sing. It wasn't compulsory, but... It wouldn't have been unusual to be singing a psalm anyway. So after the four years, what really happened was this compromise was brought forward to the, the General Assembly by evangelicals. And that was what upset me the most, that um, some evangelicals fearing that the whole thing was just going to collapse and that the church was going to force same-sex marriages on, 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 on ministers. Uh, they came up with this compromise, which was, uh, if you, you can if you want, but you don't have to if you don't want to. And that was very upsetting. I would rather stand up for the truth and lose, lose the vote than... Uh, then make a compromise on such a fundamental biblical issue. Because I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, look, this is what some of you used to be like. Yeah. You used to be adulterers, you used to be drunkards, you used to be active in homosexual relationships, but not anymore. So what we're holding out to the world is, look, that's maybe the way you are. You don't have to be like that anymore. You can be sanctified, as Paul says. Whereas that compromise is saying, no, you can just stay like that. You can, you can remain in a, a, in a life which is, is, is sinful. Right. If I went to Hope Church, would I hear about LGBT issues every single day? Oh, goodness me, no. So tell, tell me, I think you've got a healthy church. Thank you. Uh, t t tell, tell us you know, what's happening there and how you feel yourself is maybe healthy and, and getting healthier. Okay, so what happened was after the four years, this compromise was made, the majority of the elders said, no, we're seeing through this. We're not willing to live with a compromise. We're going to leave. That was in 2013. And it took us to 2014, February of 2014, to get ourselves organised and in a place uh, we had the, the, the local school, 
which when it's during the weekend becomes a community centre. So we were able to hire the hall and the community in, in the school. And, um, but right from the start, we were determined to be a seven day a week church and not just to be operating one day a week. There was ground that the council were going to sell to us. We were planning to build from scratch. And then the local care centre closed, the, the local uh, nursing home closed. And we uh, offered to buy it. And the owners of the care home said, we'd rather sell to you than to a rival company. So in 2016, we were able to buy our own premises. Now, the great thing about that, David, is, and you'll know this, that you can then tailor make your building for your own day and age. Problem with so many congregations is they're stuck with 19th century buildings, which may have been perfectly good 100, 150 years ago. They're useless now. So even if you were offered your old building back, you wouldn't take it? No, I praise God. Every time I see the scaffolding go up on that <laughs> spire, I praise the Lord that I'm not the minister there anymore. Um, so, so basically, we have tailor-made this building. We've got the outer shell, but we have created a sanctuary area. It's big enough to give us a manse and also a large hall, kitchen, cafe area, and small meeting rooms. Now, so it's an attractive building. It has parking space. It has grounds of its own. Uh, that alone is actually quite attractive. A building itself doesn't save people. You know, people, people are not converted because of a building, but they can be put off because of a building. Mm -hmm. So we have a very attractive building. Uh, so that's the first thing. And, and, and then having a heart for the community. Now, we are not a gathered congregation. We are... You're a parish church. In a, in, in a sense, we are. A parish church is mostly local people who come. So we love our area, we love our neighbours, and right from the start, we have got engaged in children's work uh, and also in um, creative ideas. So one of our ladies uh, is quite a skilled artist, and she runs an art class, and that is attracting people from the community. Uh, we decided that we would hold three in-service days a year when the schools are off and kids are at home and parents don't know what to do with them. They're maybe you know, going to work. So we run an in-service day from nine o'clock to three o'clock, the school hours on those days. And that has given us a relationship with these children. So much so, David, that uh, some of them have now reached primary seven and they're going into the high school next term. And so for the first time, we're going to start a youth ministry because we haven't had youths until now. So that's built up organically. No. Um, I think the preaching is very important, if I can say that. Uh, what we're finding is the new people who are coming tend to be coming from churches where the preaching was almost non-existent. Okay, let me just inter interrupt you there. Tell, tell, tell our listeners, in your opinion, uh, what is good preaching? Good preaching has to connect. It has to be connected to the Bible. 
because otherwise you're just giving man's opinions. So it has to connect with scripture and via the human vessel, connect with the listeners, connect with the congregation. They have to be persuaded that this ancient text, we're going through 1 Samuel, we're talking about events that took place in the Iron Age. <laughs> but they have to see that those events directly connect to them and their faith and their everyday living. So I think good preaching has to connect. Right, you, you, you're a very clear preacher. Where did that come from? Um, that came from uh, a chap called Stephen Reed. Who uh, he's the kind of guy who mentored me in my early years, and he's still a very good friend of mine. And so I always say that he taught me how to preach. He himself based his preaching on Eric Alexander. And not difficult for me with a legal background. In other words, clarity. Clarity. If you're trying to persuade somebody, uh, a jury, for example, uh, you're trying to persuade them your client's innocence, or even just a judge, keep it simple. Be clear. Don't try and bamboozle. Um, now, did your previous... And there's got to be a certain logic to it. Each point has to follow from... Right. Did your previous congregational parish um, context influence the way you preached? No, no. Um, except to the extent that... I mean, you're not preaching to a banner of truth. You're not preaching to a Banner Truth Conference. You, you're preaching right, to you're ordinary yeah. Lanarkshire people. Yes, yes. All the, yeah. From that point of view, yes. Absolutely, yeah. Now, that's not preaching down to people. There were very educated people in the congregation. But we're talking about spiritual things. And the most intelligent people don't get spiritual things. So clarity, um, making it simple, but also... Um, one step following after, not going round and round in circles. What about that's passion? What, is there a place for passion? Well, there has to be, David. And that's what I miss. <laughs> that's what I miss in so much modern preaching, David. Are they given a lecture? Are they given a talk? How can you preach with your hands in your pockets? <laughs> so it's not very persuasive. Oh. I mean, Eric Alexander, I mean, he used to direct the traffic in the way he was preaching. It was good there, you know, like that. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, maybe a wee bit like that myself. Right, let, let, let's just w w wind up. I mean, I often tell the story that um, the first time I was in, well, not the first time I was introduced to your, to your church, that was when myself and Alan McDonald went along. But when he came into the free church, I remember going along to one of your elders' meetings, and I was struck by the, the way the guys prayed. It was just wall to wall, nonstop. In the free church, it's like pulling teeth sometimes at a prayer meeting. So can you tell us just a wee bit, was that typical of the spirit of prayer in your congregation? And where did that come from? I made them pray. Right, expand that. Well, when I first went, it was me, I opened the, the church session in prayer. I thought, we're all elders here. You know, my prayers aren't more effective than any of the other elders. So I just suggested to them, I said, look, gentlemen, uh, the most important thing for us as brothers in Christ is that we pray together. So shall we just do that? Shall we just go around? 
And so there's not um, any embarrassing silences one after the other tree. And uh, they liked the idea and they went for it. Well, Jesus it's, it's, it's important, again, David, it's important for me to say to the congregation, your elders pray for you. How do I know that? Because I'm with them when they're praying for them. And is there that same spirit of prayer in your weekly prayer meeting? To a certain extent. Um, I think uh, I haven't heard any minister say that the prayer meeting is the best attended meeting in the whole week. Um, but uh, I, I kind of vary things. We'll have maybe a couple of months of a prayer meeting and then we'll maybe break into Bible study groups, home groups. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll vary at that. But the insistence is that at every meeting there is there is corporate prayer. Okay. So, I mean, I, I know that your congregation now in terms of the buildings is sitting about 80% capacity. All the church gurus say that that's at the point that you maybe think about starting another one. Uh, is, is there a possibility, maybe not this year or next year, but is there a possibility of more churches, more free churches being started in Lanarkshire? Well, I would hope so, David, because uh, we have people, although, although I said we're, we're a local church, we do have folk who travel in uh, from Stonehouse, Lark Hall, even Hamilton itself. And the need for a good reformed church in these places is necessary. Um, and the charismatics, they seem to pop up and then disappear and uh, here, there and everywhere. And there's no staying power with them. But um, yeah, I, I would love to see that. Wouldn't it be great if we had a, a, a presbytery of Lanarkshire? Absolutely. Watch this space. Watch this space. Okay, and we're, we're nearing the, the end now, but have you any, you know, words of, of what's encouraging you these days um, in, in the free church, in your own context, and in the wider Scottish church? Well, what encourages me about the free church, why I'm glad we came into the free church, is at least we're trying. I love the idea 30 by 30. Okay, might not make you, you know, plant 30 churches by 2030, but if you don't have a dream, how are you going to have a dream come true? Yeah. So aim for something. I think that's a, I think that's great. Um, what encourages me locally at the moment is the new people that are coming to us are coming because they want biblical preaching. They're tired of nonsense. And so there's a hunger uh, for, for that, and, and that, that's, that's great to see. Well, Ian, thank you for a no-nonsense interview, for, for your honesty, for your encouragement. So uh, your, look up website, Google, Hope Church, Blackwood and Kirk Muir Hill, and you'll see more about the ministry of that congregation. Thank you for being with us today, Ian. Thank you for the privilege. 